This is Erskine Veterans Radio and, and joining us this week um, to talk to us about some of the work that they've done in the past and some of the involvement they have with the charity is one of our new ambassadors and it's somebody you'll certainly recognise the face and I assume the voice of as well because he's been a newspaper, radio and television journalist for 40 years, the nightly face of the Scottish news on STV for more than a quarter of a century and on top of that, an officer in the Army Reserve since 1994 and served in operations in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's now the latest ambassador to be added to the Erskine Veteran Charity. And uh, he's going to tell us all about all of his previous work and um, how he's looking forward to being more involved with Erskine over the uh, the coming months and, and years. And my great pleasure to welcome to Erskine Veterans Radio, Mike Edwards. Hello, Mike. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm great, yes, and uh, great to have you on the show. Um, first, uh, a very Pleasure. well, a very warm welcome to the Erskine Charity as an ambassador and also a yeah. trustee. And indeed, and what a fabulous organisation! Uh, what a wonderful charity uh, to be involved in, and I, I can't really describe adequately how how proud and privileged I am to be involved. Well, it's great to have you with us. Let's start off at the the beginning of your journey because. Um, you wear quite a number of, of hats. You've, we, you've got your civilian career and also a military career and now a charity career as well. Just give us an overview of, of, of the things that you've done. Uh, my goodness me, yes. I, <laughs> I, I, I um, celebrated my 56th birthday in April and that uh, milestone, if I can put it like that, coincides with uh, 40 years since I started to take money for writing stories. I was still a schoolboy. I, I was a football mad schoolboy in Inverness. <clears throat> and I had pestered and pestered and pestered the editor of the local paper for a job. Because in those days there was, you know, the there wasn't the um, uh, the proliferation of, of media studies and journalist studies uh, courses in colleges that there are today. Uh, there was one place in Scotland that did journalism. And as you can imagine, the competition was very fierce. So I thought I would just circumvent that process and get a job at my local newspaper. And I pestered this poor man by phoning him and, and turning up on his doorstep. Um, uh, and, and he was always, to be fair to him, he was a great old guy called Willie Wilson, who was a, a, a journalistic legend in Scotland in the 70s and 80s. And to be fair to him, he always took my phone call even though he always said, no, Mike, look, you know, you're too young, you're too inexperienced, you need to go to college, da 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 And then one day I phoned him and he started to say all this, and then he went, hang on, hang on. Are sports reporters um, going to have to uh, move over to the news desk to do maternity leave cover? So actually, there is a bit of a vacancy. Come and see me tomorrow. Uh-huh. So the next day I went to see him, and that night, that night, I was uh, covering local football matches at the public park in Inverness, the Bach Park. And it, was, it wasn't the sort of, you know, Fleet Street Pulitzer Prize winning job you'd imagine because there was, I think there were eight games on at the same time. <laughs> so it worked that <laughs> And uh, I was still 16 years old. I was still at school. I don't think I'd sat my old grades. And I was getting paid to write about football, which I loved. And that got my foot in the door. 
And from there, you had a career in newspapers, and then that led to radio, and then that led to TV. And I suppose the difference between being on newspapers and radio to being on the TV is that all of a sudden that your face gets recognised and, and you start becoming a bit of a, a local, if not national celebrity, which is a different side to it all, isn't it? I'd go out for a beer and people would come up to me in pubs and stuff. And it, it, that wasn't why I got into television. Um, that was a, a byproduct, which, you know, after a little while, became just what happened. But you know, being recognised was was, you know, so what. Um, I wanted to work in television because I wanted to work on the stories. I wanted to work. I wanted to be right at the point where these stories were happening, and I did. And the fact that people would come up and you know want an autograph or or more recently a, a selfie was was irrelevant really and people didn't i don't think and, and why should they i suppose understand the hard work that's involved i think they think that it's just about being on t- on tv which it's not it's absolutely not and i remember doing a i used to do a lot of court reports because in newspapers i'd covered courts and, and I, I knew my way around which the news desk at scottish television loved because I think they thought, because I was a little bit older than everyone else, a little bit more experienced, I was a safe pair of hands to put on these big, legal, complicated stories. And I remember outside the high court somewhere, standing there and doing my piece. And it was, you know, from memory, a couple of minutes, no no notes, certainly no autocue. And uh, and this, this guy came up to me and he said, I thought, I, I thought you'd have somebody to do all that for you. <laughs> And I said, how do you mean? He said, well, do you not have like a, an auto cure or, or, you know, a guy holding like idiot boards? And I said, no, mate, I, I write it and I memorize it. He said, I don't believe you. I said, well, you know, uh, and he stood and watched me do it. <laughs> and I said, no, there's no nobody else. And uh, I think people, and I'm sure you're the same, Ian, in radio, that people don't really quite understand. And, you know, why should they? And and people would come up to me and say, Mike, where do you get your clothes? And I said, well, Marks and Spencers mostly. Where do you get yours? <laughs> no way. You presumably you've got a designer who designs your clothes for you and all this kind of thing. I'm thinking you've got no idea. Who does your makeup? Who does your makeup? And I said, I don't wear makeup unless I'm in the studio, which is very seldom. And uh, just people just. But yeah, but as, as I said, why should they? They don't understand. They want you to tell them what's happening in a minute and a half and then go home. Yeah, often the facade of uh, TV and things like that is far more exciting than the, than the reality, isn't it? It's just yeah. <laughs> that's how it is. People, yeah, people used to say with the glamour of television, I said, I promise you, I absolutely promise you, the presenter in the studio, he or she, they are, they're glamorous. They do get makeup. They do get wardrobe. I work out there. You know, out in the rain, out in the in the mud, and in Scotland, it's a you know in the winter, it's a pretty tough job. Absolutely, but not as tough as uh, going out to areas of conflict, because you became involved in uh, in the military and and are still a serving reservist with twenty seven yeah. years experience. Yeah. Um, how did all that come about? What was that path, and how did well, that it's, begin? It's interesting. You you know you say that I, having. Um, had that milestone birthday just six weeks or so ago i've realized now i am now in my last job in the army because you you retire at 60. so that was another milestone so yes um it came about because 
um, and I'm in no way, absolutely no way, comparing myself to my father and grandfather. They they were they were called up to serve in the first and second world wars in the Royal Navy. And um, I never met my grandfather, but my my father used to tell me all his stories. And because all his friends had served in the in in the war, um, I was surrounded by these men as a young boy, and I used to sit wrapped absolutely wrapped by their stories and i think it was inevitable because it was a huge part of my father's life His, he served on the atlantic convoys in the royal navy and the privations and, and you know some of the things he very seldom spoke about actually but uh, i was i think it, i was inured it was just absolutely you know absorbed by me as a child and when i got the chance i remember sitting watching a football match on tv and the ad break came on and one of the adverts was uh, come and join the TA as it was. And I thought, you know what, I've always wanted to do this. And I phoned, there was a number on the screen. I phoned the number there and then. And the guy said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 29. He said, you're very lucky because we close at 30. And um, that was it. So I, I, I just got in. Um, and just under the age limit and, uh, and joined the army or the TA as it was at 29. Wow. And that took you on some, um, some key conflicts of, of fairly modern history, really in places yes. like uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And obviously the, 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 the realities and I, I guess the, the horrors of yeah. what goes on in these places quickly comes yeah. home to you. Yeah. I've, I've seen, I've seen some, I've seen life and death. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been all over the world with the military, um, and that has been a, a huge privilege. And and to, um, you know, to to see the sun come up on Mount Kenya and stuff like that, you know, just and meeting people in in, um, you know, all over the world, and and seeing, you know, some of the most fantastic sites geographically, and uh, you know wonderful people um but also the downside i suppose although at the time it was very very much something i wanted to do was the conflict and um it was uh, you know very sobering and i had joined i had joined in 1994 uh, at, at the age of 29 and i thought the uh, the balkans war was happening and i thought the, the, without question the British military, whether it's uh, parts of UN forces or NATO or, or whatever, may well become involved. And if I'm in, I may well get called up. I may well get mobilised. And I thought, well, okay, if you join the reserve, there's every chance that will happen. But it didn't. And then the Kosovo War started, and that was in 1999. And I was a, a five-year veteran by then. And I thought, well, there's every chance like some of my friends, there's every chance I could get mobilized to go to Kosovo. In the end, I went to Kosovo as a journalist, um, but I thought there's every chance I could get mobilized here, but I didn't. And the, the Balkans, obviously, you know, that, that conflict continued at varying levels for, for, for several years, and I wasn't, I wasn't um, mobilized. And then the Twin Towers, uh, disaster on on 9/11 that happened and I and I, I think the the American military retaliated within hours 
um, with airstrikes on Afghanistan. And I thought, given what the, you know, the enormity of this and the, um, the, the, you know, the impact and this, this, the spread of the impact, i.e. this is global, I think there's every chance I will be mobilized for this, having not been mobilized for the Balkans, having not been mobilized for Bosnia and Kosovo, I can't imagine I'm not going to be mobilized for any kind of response to 9-11, and, and I was. And then not long after I returned from Afghanistan, uh, a very similar call came to go to Iraq. And I, I, I as a, you know, I'm a 56-year-old man now, I sit and ask myself questions that, about why I volunteered for both of these uh, conflicts. I wasn't mobilized compulsorily I volunteered and I sometimes just sit and pinch myself you know to say to see what on earth were you thinking of and what a difference from reporting as a as a journalist because if you're part of a press corps clearly your, your job is there to report but then being there as a reservist was it a thing in your mind perhaps that you had to actually you know kick yourself into gear that look you know I'm I'm here to fight now not not yeah, to report okay. no there was there, I mean those are two very different hats. And as soon as you put a, a military uniform on and pick up a weapon, you are a different person. You are a soldier. And I didn't need any motivating to, you know, to do that. That was my job. And I knew, um, you know, I knew what was happening. And I, uh, you know, it was a, a totally different um, mindset, a totally different world and a totally different uh, outlook and viewpoint. And, you know, they are so binary. It's it's uh, you know, there was no um, no thought needed really. Just something you did. Tell us about some of the things that you were doing on deployments out in in Iraq. First of all, I was there right from the start, and unusually, I did my service um, different from a lot of soldiers. If you look at so, or service personnel, if you look at the, their medals, you generally see the Iraq medal, then the Afghanistan medal, and then all the others. My medals, it's the other way around because I served in Afghanistan first. But in Iraq, we started in Kuwait um, and we waited and we waited and then we deployed into the desert and we set up the, the part of the British 1st UK Armoured Division, which is fascinating to see a wartime division set up, ready to go. Um, and I'll never, I've got goosebumps now talking about this, Ian. Um, I, I will never forget that moment when you know, on H hour on D-Day, okay, move now. And the whole division just moved and punched into Iraq. And um, I assure you, it never leaves you. Look at my arms. Blimey. Um, and I, and I was working, obviously, for the, a British division. And uh, we moved north um, to uh, basically take, although we didn't do it immediately, take Basra. And then we moved in such a way into the desert that the Americans, the Marines, could do what, what's called a passage of lines. They basically cross through us and headed on up the main supply route towards Baghdad. Because in that kind of expeditionary warfare, you don't really win until you take the capital and overthrow the, the, the leader who, who was Saddam Hussein. Now, that didn't happen for some considerable time. And because obviously the American military is, was huge by comparison to us, to our, to our expeditionary force, um, and they had the means and the materiel and the and the, the men 
and women to, to go and keep going up to Baghdad. And we took Basra and we stayed there. And I, I went no further north than Basra. And how did that compare with your experience in Afghanistan in terms of the, the things that you were doing there? I was working in the headquarters. Actually, in Afghanistan, I was working with NATO. And I was uh, working in uh, uh, the headquarters of ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force. And at that time, um, ISAF, which was a NATO formation, was led by the Turkish military. So my my work was for, yes, it was for ISAF, but it was actually for the Turkish, uh, I was working for a Turkish command. And um, my immediate superior was uh, a Turkish Navy uh, commander. And it was a, a real League of Nations. I had a, um, a New Zealand uh, Air Force wing commander in my team. There was a, I had uh, Greeks and Swedes, and it was a fascinating experience. But I was basically working in the, uh, the NATO headquarters in Kabul whilst I was in Afghanistan. And so really that experience you've talked about of being a reservist and, and serving in some of those conflicts that you've mentioned and your other life as well of being um, in in the media and, and on the news and being a news reporter and I suppose working in PR really, which is sort of what it is, uh, are, are great skills that you bring to the Erskine Veterans Charity now as uh, as both an ambassador and a trustee. You know, I don't mean to be blowing my own trumpet, but I think I give Erskine uh, two or three different um, inputs. Um, I was the main carer for my mother, who had a diagnosis of dementia, and I was able to, um, you know, bring that experience to the table. Also, clearly, being in the media uh, for for all those years. There's a bit of a poacher turned gamekeeper kind of relationship there that um, I can um, I, I can see things coming and I can spot things that you know are useful to know for the charity and of course I'm I'm still a serving reservist so I've got you know I have th- if I can put it this way I've got three fingers in the pie so hopefully um, to mix my metaphors that will cover a few bases. And coming from a military background, were you well aware of the Erskine Veterans Charity through that? Uh, what was your introduction to the Erskine Veterans Charity? Yes, I think anybody who is is uh, in, involved in the military, or indeed not, if you're living in the west of Scotland, you'll know Erskine is the town that's on the on the, the, the south bank of the Clyde. And of course, there, there's been a, a bridge uh, at Erskine over the Clyde, probably for 50 odd years. Um, but the name Erskine was synonymous with the Erskine Hospital, which started in 1916 and cared for um, men who were uh, wounded in the in the First World War. And they've grown and grown and their, their role and mission has changed radically um, in, the, in the subsequent years. So I was aware of it and, and more than once, and this was in the 90s, STV, Scottish Television, um, sent me there to do stories. And, and the media being, the media, if there was a, let's say, an anniversary of, and I think in, in this in this case, this would have been 1998. So that was what, the the um, what, the what 80th anniversary of, of the, um, the end of uh, the First World War. And I was sent to Erskine to go and interview some veterans. And it was just, you know, it struck me later, it certainly struck, strikes me now, maybe more than it did at the time, 
but I was speaking to men who had been in the trenches and who had lived through the horrors of that war. And we see it now on, on, you know, on Pathé film and black and white footage and all the rest of it. But these men were actually there uh, and remarkable men to listen to. And I'm so glad, I'm so proud and a privilege now, as I, I, I understand more and more now, that I had met these men and I was able to tell their story or they told their stories. I was able to facilitate that. And that what a remarkable privilege. Uh, and thankfully, all these interviews are recorded and they exist. So hopefully in a hundred years time, you know, people will still listen to these stories and learn from them. I think it's probably the most important thing. So I, I used to love being sent to Erskine and my news desk were quite happy to let me do it because nobody else knew anything about the military. So because I was in the reserve or the TA as it was, they were quite happy to send me. And you were the main, main carer for your mother and later mother-in-law, both of whom died after a diagnosis of dementia, which you alluded to earlier in our chats. Um, how important a part did this play in your charity work now? Yes, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I retired. Basically, I, I knew that uh, my mother's situation was deteriorating rapidly and she needed uh, care that was constant. She lived with us, but she needed care. Um, she needed to be fed. She needed to be toileted. She needed to be washed. She needed simulation. She needed to be spoken to. She needed someone to hold her hand and talk to her and listen to her. And I thought, um, there's only one person who I would want to do that, and that's me. So um, I was very fortunate that I was in a position that I could basically just retire and look after my mother. And uh, yes, I mean, over the, the last months, and I had nearly a year with her before she passed away. I had nine months with her. Um, Day, you know, constantly round the clock. And it was just wonderful to be able to do it. And I, I, you know, thanked my lucky stars at every opportunity that I had the, uh, the capacity and the time and the opportunity to do it. Because a lot of people are working, a lot of people have families, a lot of people have children, a lot of people live thousands of miles away from their loved ones. But I was able to just drop everything and, 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 and focus on my mother. And it was during that time that I realized that, you know, my life had been up until that point all about me, about my career, um, about being on the TV every night with the big story. I didn't want to have the fourth lead or the fifth lead. I wanted the lead story because I just wanted to be where the news was happening. My life was about me in the army, about getting that next promotion or getting that next course or doing that next trip, whatever. And, you know, it was about trying to get another book published and writing another book and getting it published and getting it out. I wanted to be doing all these things. And then I realized that suddenly my life was now not about me. It was about, well, first and foremost, my mother and then charity work. Because I, I, I realized that I could hopefully, I hope, help any number of other people by my experience, by my knowledge of the media, knowledge of the military, knowledge of dementia. And I was able to, I hope, um, 
cover a whole lot more bases than than just concentrating on myself. And you are not just an ambassador, but a trustee as well. What what what's the difference for for someone who's who's not fully aware? Um, the well, the fact that I'm speaking to you today, I'm speaking to you as an ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, being you know, the trustees' work is behind the scenes. It's uh, about the about the management of the charity. It's about um, the business. It's about the scrutiny. It's about the running. It's about the um, you know the sort of backshop, um, if I can back office um, running of the organisation, and obviously a lot of that, particularly the financial stuff um, and the corporate stuff, is confidential, and it's it's something that you don't really hear about until after it's happened, or or you may not hear about it at all if some things, you know, some projects happen or don't happen. And of course, recently, when I started as a trustee with Erskine almost exactly a year ago, it was all COVID related. So that was the, the sort of back office stuff, uh, which tends not to be publicized for, for very good reasons. The ambassador role, which I've only just started, is totally different. That's very overt. It's very, you know, out there. It's about, about social media. It's about spreading the good word of the charity and what it does for so many different people. It's for, uh, you know, I don't know how much for how much longer my image will still be um, out there, but people would still know the name, know the face, know the voice. So for however long I'm able to, I'll be shouting from the rooftops what a great place Erskine is and what a great job it does for great people. Mike Edwards, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Thanks for joining us and telling us a little bit about your career on the on the TV, the radio, in newspapers, and of course in the armed forces. And now, what you're looking forward to with uh, getting involved with the Erskine Veterans Charity too, as a, a trustee and as an ambassador. Before you go, can you give us one song, one of your personal favourites uh, to play on Erskine Veterans Radio? I've got hundreds of favourite songs, but I think if I was pushed. And, um, you know, pulled. I have one. I would like to hear, I think it is my favourite song, Given Everything. Um, I'll Find My Way Home by John and Vangelis. It's just, it's haunting. It's beautifully uh, worded lyrically. It's fantastic. It's a f- fabulous melody. And it's uh, just uh, two very, very clever, very, very talented musicians. And it just... Uh, This makes me happy and sad at the same time, and it's a wonderful piece of music.